Thank you. Okay, uh, thanks for coming. Um, one thing I always say at the beginning of lectures is that um, it's perfectly fine if you have um, any questions during the lecture to, uh, to interject or just heckle. And, um, and it's good to, um, for me in a way it's good because it sort of changes the direction of the way that I was going to go. <clears throat> I, I did a show recently at the Icon in, in Birmingham and, um, and I've been talking endlessly um, about that show. And, um, and so I'm sort of in a sort of a funny position where I'm trying to move on now to the next um, way of talking and thinking about where the work might be coming from. And so, yes, if you, <laughs> if you want to give me a hand, that would be fine in terms of, of asking questions. Um, so having talked about Icon and how I'm moving on, I'm going to start with talking about Icon Show. And, um, and I was going to talk about actually where I was with the type of thinking about um, in terms of where I was thinking about the body and thinking about how, why I was sort of addressing sort of different, um, different ways that the body is sort of perceived, how I want to sort of, sort of maybe re-engineer the sort of the image of the body perhaps, and why, that this, uh, why and where this might have occurred. Um, and I suppose an origin for this to some degree is, um, is probably going to, a, to some degree to the studio where I work um, in London. There's, um, I sort of work in a, in a sort of a brutalist building uh, which is on the sort of the borders of St. John's Wood and Swiss Cottage. And it's, it's a, quite a well-known building. It's this sort of valley of concrete and it's in a lot of uh, films. It's always used as a sort of, this <clears throat> uses a dystopian landscape in uh, a number of sort of uh, BBC um, dramas, but also um, in reasonably good films as well. And, um, and so there is this sort of, <laughs> it's not a critique, <laughs> And um, it's actually in a new BBC drama, which they're, they're filming right now. Um, the building itself and the way that the studio, which used to be um, essentially the mini-mart for the estate, um, I sort of occupy. And I occupy the building, and the mini-mart is essentially at the, the, the heart of the estate. It's surrounded by um, flats above, to the left, to the right. People walk past children playing on, the, on this sort of parkway outside of the studio would come in during the summer. So I've got that to look forward to. And, and so in a way, you feel that you're very much sort of part of one, a community, and number two, that you're very much part of being surrounded by people, endlessly surrounded by people, and, and that sort of somehow, when I moved into that studio, has influenced me to actually just reflect upon essentially ideas of being and thinking about physical forms. And so some of the earlier works, for instance, over my shoulder at the moment, a very early work where I was really sort of thinking about the figure, but wanting to bring the figure actually very directly into the physicality of material, was actually thinking about essentially hanging an engine up. This is a sort of a Mercedes engine, which I bought from a scrapyard. This is around 1999. And so, you know, post-graduation, you know, you don't have a great deal of money, and you don't really have much, um, you don't have much of anything. And so you're just sort of drifting and thinking about sort of putting together the set of ideas that are eventually going to sort of structure, structure how your personality might sort of you know, eventually sort of evolve into. 
Um, one thing that I might go into a bit later on is something that I was talking about quite a lot with the Icon show, which was essentially that the show was trying to sort of describe the moment between thinking about how ideas were then sort of transitioning into the idea, I'm oh, sorry, transitioning into mood. And how I was thinking about, at the time of making the show, thinking about the moment between the, the sort of the establishment of the persona, this, this manage, uh, the establishment of your identity through the ideas that you collect through your life, and then how that at some point that sort of gestates into the idea of a mood, that it somehow sort of evolves into how you reflect upon certain textures, perhaps within the works. Seizure, another piece of work which I made a number of years ago, was also a sort of an idea about the modulation of mood the way that actually the mood and the way that your sort of psychological kind of relationship to material could somehow be influenced. And so that was also something which I'm going to talk about in a little while. Um, it's going to talk about quite a bit in a little while. But this was sort of um, an early piece, which was in sort of 1999, engine hanging in the studio. You're sort of looking at it. You're thinking, yeah, this is a nice sort of lump of physical sort of stuff from the world. You know, it's an interesting object in itself, and it's hanging by a chain on the studio. And so, you know, on an afternoon, I'd had a student uh, from down the road at Goldsmiths. And, you know, I asked him, you know, would you come to the studio and would you undress? And would you, you know, essentially jump onto the engine? And, and I'll stand there <laughs> and look at you for a bit um, and maybe take a couple of photographs, and then you can get dressed and, you know, and then we'll just move on from this. And... <laughs> And, and so that happened. And it was very sort of interesting to know or to feel what that was about. That essentially that you'd, you'd, you'd wanted to create a sort of a, a conjunction between the sort of the physicality of the, the fleshiness of the human, but also you wanted the sort of the dirty, used kind of mechanical also being in somehow collaboration. Um, at the time, I was sort of really sort of absorbed in a, a sort of a photograph of Lee Miller by Man Ray, which is of her leaning on a printing press, and you have this rather phallic handle of the printing press. And so in a way, this was a sort of a reflection on that. This was a sort of reflection on that sort of imagery, perhaps. And hence the reason why the, the photograph now is as a kind of a black and white remnant. Um, and so with this work, it was very difficult to know what to do with it. So it's 1999, <clears throat> and I'm working as a postman, having graduated, and I, you know, you, you, you've got a lot of sort of spare time. And, um, but there isn't a lot of structure. There isn't a, you know, you've got this sort of YBA thing buzzing around in the background somewhere. You've also got some really fascinating artists sort of showing in a gallery called Robert Prime, who is showing these sort of, you know, wonderful artists from, uh, some, from Europe, um, who are the, you know, the antithesis of, of anything that was sort of the media sensation of YBA. And so you, you, you're in this sort of complex but actually quite flat environment. Nothing is exciting or is, or, or is completely um, unendingly renewable as the present as, that we're all kind of experiencing now. Everything was kind of a bit grey <laughs> and a bit flat. And so what you do when you make a work like this is essentially you forget about it. You sort of take a photograph and then you don't draw, dwell on it for much longer. Um, so for, for the best part of about 10 years, I sort of put it, put it away. And then that sort of group of works, the youth works, as they became sort of known as, would then sort of develop later. So this was a sort of a later work. This is a more recent work. And so this is a, a naked youth 
sitting on an X-ray machine, an X-ray machine from a hospital. So, you know, it's a piece of stuff from the world, and uh, and it has a certain sort of you know usage. And then you you know you're presenting the being, you're presenting the the, the, the sort of the presentness of a youth. And so, what sort of fascinated me about the youth and bringing the youth in was kind of a number of things. I've, I wanted to think about time in artworks. I wanted to think about the idea that you have a privilege when you're making an artwork. And that privilege is essentially that, you know, an artwork is protected to the day that the sun eventually explodes and we all, we all get sort of killed. You know, art is there forever. You know, art is supposed to be sort of unendingly looked after in, in perpetuity. And so that's, well, that's the, that's the theory. And so in a way, if you sort of introduced into the system of the art world an artwork which is rejuvenating endlessly within the parenthesis of youth you know that the work itself is an object you know that work is pretty much within the present it's going to date it's going to look like a 50s object would look now in maybe 30 years time but the youth will always be a youth the youth will always be present and so in a way I wanted to sort of try and very simply slip through that sort of problem and present the idea that sort of this ongoing sort of presentness was always going to be present within the work. And I think that there was something really fascinating about this sort of perpetual presentness within an artwork, that actually one of the sort of the conundrums, the problems of making artworks or the problems of sort of facing art is to think about how you're supposed to make an object or an object or an artwork that's for all time, rather than just that really narrow parenthesis of time in which that artwork is supposed to represent. And so that was always something which I always had a, a, a kind of, I always took issue with. You know, I wouldn't mind sort of exploring or figuring out the sort of the possibility of an artwork which kind of slips through time. Um, and so in a way, this work maybe to some degree sort of addresses that issue. I don't know whether or not it successfully addresses it, but it sort of goes some way in sort of de delineating a kind of an idea about the idea that you've got infinite time to play with as an art object that you're allowed to play with you know you can put an object into the into the system of art into the art system of for instance a Tate collection and it will be looked after and it will always be sustained and I remember a sort of a conversation that I was having at a similar time when I was making the youth work that I'd sold a piece to Tate and it was an engine crystallized and it was sitting on a little kind of metal chair and the conversation went something like you know, what do you want the future to hold for this work? It's an engine, it's been crystallized, it's covered in a sort of an acidic material. We can already see that it's disintegrating. So what do you envisage? And I would say, you know, well, you know, at some point it's going to eat away, it's going to disappear, it's going to erode. And so they'd, 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 they'd come back to me and say, well, Roger, you, you need to think again. You know, what do we really envisage with this work, seeing as that you don't own this work anymore? And seeing as that this work is now in a collection which is supposed to maintain this work as a kind of a, um, what's the best way of putting it? It's sort of like a hospital for art. Sort of a, and so they were looking at it in this way, this sort of intensive care unit for art. And then they took me into another room and they showed me this yellow box. And in this yellow box was this Nam Garbo. And on a Wednesday afternoon at about three o'clock, you know, some rainy afternoon, the Nam Garbo suddenly decided to go ping. 
and this piece of perspex made probably in the 30s, late 30s, suddenly decided not to be a Nam Garbo anymore. It sort of decided to be, become this flat, shapeless piece of plastic. And so what they showed me was a box with lots of pins. And all those pins were kind of pinning it into the shape that it formerly had. What they approximated it from photographs and from what the material was offering them, you know, what it would look like had it not essentially failed. And uh, as far as I understand it, that box is still, it takes. And that box is, they're still scratching their heads about what is the next thing to do. How do we sort of solve an artwork, which is a really important piece of kind of making? How do we save it? How do we sort of recreate it? And at the moment, they're talking about the sort of scanning technology. They're thinking about how we could cast something that looks like the approximation of an aged piece of perspex. And so in a way, their conversation is talking about a kind of a simulation, a kind of a, a simulacra of the original artwork. And so this conversation then swung back to me. They said, you know, Roger, we don't want this thing to disintegrate, but you do. But the middle ground is, is that we don't want it to disintegrate, and so it won't. And so at the moment, they, they hold it in a, in a careful state. But also, the, what they described was is that they essentially wanted me to make, write, help them write a book about how to make the work again. And that's where we left it. It was essentially, if it does fail, you will have to make this work again. And they were happy with this. And so it was a kind of an education. It was an education in the sort of conservation of something that, would, that is supposed to last. And so I guess in a way these works were a kind of a hangover, a kind of a memory of those conversations about this sort of need, this sort of desire for, um, for artworks to, to, eventually, you know, to essentially survive. And that a lot of artworks are actually made that aren't supposed to survive that they're not made for the long term. And I suppose an art historical context is the thing that really maintains them, that makes them kind of elevated and important to protect. But actually the artworks are resisting, and they do, you know, they consistently resist. And I suppose in a way that sort of always interested me. And to some degree I make a lot of work in unstable materials, but not purposefully, not because I want the work to disappear. It kind of gives me a lot of anxiety to some degree. And it gives a lot of people who who maybe own the work, a lot of anxiety. Um, but, um, but in a way, actually, it's those material choices which actually sort of have some kind of relevance with the present day, that they allow a certain way of activity, a certain way of acting to occur that other materials or other ways of acting don't. Um, and so another thing I'll talk about later, perhaps, is behavior. I'm talking far too long about this one picture. We've got millions... Okay, so this is another variation. This is a sort of a jet engine, but the jet engine has an antidepressant material also within the, the system of the, the, uh, the jet engine. Um, and so, again, I wanted to sort of bring a collision of sort of materiality. I wanted to think about sort of antidepressants. I wanted to think about the sort of the social structure that antidepressants sort of enables the, you know, our environment somehow. But the fact that we are completely sort of, you know, we're in a, we're in a strange system where, you know, you know, some of us are modulated in terms of our mood and our behavior. And so in a way, I wanted to sort of think about that material. And I wanted to think about that material being a really sophisticated and quite cutting edge material. And I wanted to put it in proximity to use. And I wanted to put it in proximity to an engine which had essentially served in a helicopter in Afghanistan. And so you had all of these sort of rather sort of unwieldy, weighty, but sort of possibly too much kind of put into the same work somehow. And then just to sort of add a little bit too much more to it, you know, you have the element of fire put into it too. 
This is a work which was sort of debuted at the Icon, but it was a work which was following on from a work which was commissioned for Venice Biennale, which was um, the curator wanted to enact a piece of work which I'd um, sort of proposed many, many times, but never actually got around to making, which was essentially the disintegration, the sort of the powdering of, an, um, of a Church of England altar stone. And I'd held an altar stone in my store for a long time. I'd sort of been sort of essentially given it by a sort of a reclamation yard who, who kind of knew where it had come from and thought that this might be an interesting sort of object for me to kind of hold on to. And at the time, I was sort of atomizing jet engines from aircrafts. And so it became kind of interesting to think about this within the same frame. I also then started to talk about the behavior, the way of essentially sort of seeking a type of permission for this type of work to exist. I sort of walked into the situation thinking, yes, this is fine. I'm going to take this stone and I'm going to turn it into a, essentially a sand. It's made of granite. So it's, you know, when you powder a, an altar, it's sand. And so essentially the naked youth is sitting amongst a sort of a sand. But that sand was once the, the focus, the, the sort of the um, institutional and sort of authority of the church to some degree where you would sort of point or you would direct your sort of your faith. And so I thought that there was something very interesting about taking this apart. So I talked to um, the Church of England. The Church of England recommended that I talk to a man who commissions church altars. And I wanted to talk to him about the work. I wanted to talk about what I was doing. And I wanted to talk about the fact that this wasn't somehow a challenge. And it wasn't somehow some kind of um, baiting in any way. It was about actually wanting to further understand perhaps this need to take objects into the next stage. And that was something of another obsession, which is essentially to take objects, to take the sort of the, the dominant objects in the world and somehow repurpose, repoint them. And so the conversation drifted towards the idea that you did have a point of authority, this minimalist kind of altar stone, you know, the, the birthplace of minimalist art to some degree. And the next stage of that is to not participate your thought and your kind of communication through prayer towards this object, but actually to become amongst it. And this is what the Church of England found very interesting. And, uh, and so the next stage of this work is essentially that the youth or somebody would become part of the actual faith or the altar stone or the materiality of the fundamentalness of the church. And so actually there was this sort of idea of kind of um, flattening, de you know, taking away the hierarchy within the, the idea of the object and the person who was sort of translating their thoughts towards the object somehow. And so, no, this became a kind of an interesting conversation for them. Um, there's an interesting photograph which I haven't got, which is uh, that this work is kind of surrounded by lots of clergy um, who were kind of just essentially having a party in the same room as this. And, um, and so they saw that this is a progressive movement. They saw this as a, a kind of an idea towards a kind of a progressive idea about how we're supposed to take maybe what is a kind of a rather mm, stuck and rather stratified kind of idea of how we are, you know, how we're living perhaps with with a type of um, ritual that how we can kind of move these things forward, how we can kind of push these things open. This is another foam. This is a piece which uh, requires some foam. Foam will come later. 
this was sort of the opening of the show, but what was important was is that um, part of the show was, um, uh, part of the introduction of the show was actually some of the, uh, a piece of work or a, piece of, a fragment of work which I'd done at the Hayward the year previously, so last year. I, I curated a show which was essentially about BSE and variant CJD, a human, human disease. And again, this was about talking about the human, thinking about the human, and also thinking about a kind of a systemic violence that sort of sustains the human, but also thinking about the pressures and the environment that us, all of us, are, are under to some degree. These kind of undulating and quite sort of consistent pressures. And so what I found very interesting was is I wanted to draw upon a kind of a memory of the 90s when essentially a, a sort of a generation could potentially have been wiped out by um, or predicted by, by the media at least to be wiped out by a brain disease which was born within, incubated within um, sort of bovine cows and then passed on to uh, humans via eating meat and through pharmaceutical use. And so I spent uh, about a year in a library in many libraries, but the Wellcome Library in particular, looking at documents which were post-government documents, uh, looking at reports, looking at sort of the media, looking at the environment that was kind of created in the 90s that sort of led to essentially a sort of a, um, an atmosphere of dread for a good few years, a good number of years, which then sort of culminated into the increase in the year 2000 where either the disease was going to really take off or it was going to trail off. And so the year 2000 was a real kind of crucial moment, and so it trailed off, and everybody was kind of okay about that. Everyone was kind of relieved because the hundreds of thousands of people that could potentially have contracted this disease didn't happen. So that ambiguity, that public ambiguity, I found incredibly um, fascinating. This ambiguity that there was this agent, this kind of material called prions, that was potentially sort of incubated by all of us who had come into contact with some kind of contamination and that contamination had been created possibly in the late 60s through a kind of a deregulation of food and, and, and feed to cows essentially. So there was a sort of type of systemic violence which then sort of increased the possibility of a kind of a repercussion within you know, the humans that were eating this material potentially. And so I sort of did this show. I made the show which was insanely intense and, um, and which was acres of information, lots of film, many, many documentaries, government films, lectures, all presented as roundly and as thoroughly as I possibly could because I wanted the viewer to be kind of elevated by the experience, i.e. to come into it, read the reports, read the dreadfulness, judge the, 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 the shrillness of the, the press, also, to be reminded by, um, by how sort of defunct and, and, and pointless the Conservative government was at that point. And, and just to try and kind of understand, you know, socially where we might have been. But also to understand how the material process within all of us and outside within the world is, is kind of interesting. And so I would call this an artwork, you know, I, would, I was calling it an artwork. People were kind of saying, well, you know, we have trouble with this. Is this not an artwork? But in a way, it was, it was a really important thing about materiality. Anyway, I'm going to move on from that one. So this is a body hanging. 
And then eventually those bodies will fall down. You know, the, the, um, the magnet essentially cuts and the fall, bodies fall in. So it's a very simple mechanism for a body just to fall to the ground. The one on the right was one I made for the US a number of for a number of years ago. And inside it, just to make it you know, deeply pretentious, there is a, um, there's a it's, it's stuffed with Martin Heidegger's being in time. And so it's got a sort of, you know, quite an, an impenetrable but interesting book stuffing this body, which is then falling. And then on the left-hand side, you've got this dummy, which used to be in films. It's quite famous. And, and inside him, he's got a small amount of bovine brain matter. And so in a way, there is a sort of materiality or trying to sort of essentially, um, I guess, friction. There's a friction and an energy which is trying to sort of occur. So I'm going to swing through these because I'm probably talking too long on this lot. Yes, I am, by miles. Okay, so these are foam works. These are, again, thinking about the body. And this was a sort of a work which was one of the key scientists in uh, understanding variant CJD. And he's talking about what he thinks might be a second generation type of disease coming along. Um, and so that was part of the investigation, was to actually think about what the disease might be in the future. So this all comes under materiality. And on the left-hand side is a sort of a metal piece, but inside these metal kind of gaps is brain matter. And so it's sort of a pictorial space. It's a pictorial kind of, kind of a picture, but made with a sort of bovine brain matter. And this was made on a, on a residency in France. This is a, another painting, but made with brain matter. There was a number of them. And this is another work, which is crystallization. Anyway, let's get through these. Um, mostly murder. No, it was, it was sort of... <laughs> it was... Um, you have um, butchers and... It's, it's, you know, it's a delicacy, and so people kind of like to eat these things. And, uh, and I remember actually sort of being fed this stuff when I was a kid, and it was sort of interesting, that and, and, you know, that and tongue. And, um, and so all of these things, you know, people like to consume. They're, 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 you know, they're there to be eaten. And what was very interesting about the, the brain that you would buy from, you know, you were trying to go to the best place you could. So there's a good but butchers in Selfridges. And so you would kind of say, well, you know, can we have some brains? And they say, well, you know, we've got a few this week, but they're very popular, so could you come back later in the day? We might get some out of ahead for you. And, and so they're mostly sort of bovine. And, um, and so the preparation of it is simply just to sort of desiccate them and to put them on the surface of these, of these, um, of these boards. And so the reason to some degree, if there could be any reason why this should, ha should occur, is that I was, I was deeply fascinated by a relationship I had with my brother, which was that he's a painter. And, and I went to Goldsmiths and he went to Slade at the same time. And so we had this very, very flinty kind of relationship about sort of who, who was right. And, um, and, um, and he was... And I couldn't understand the sort of the mania of sort of looking at a two-dimensional object on a wall and, and, and painting on it, essentially. I, I, I had issues 
I couldn't sort of understand where that was about. And so I sort of carried with me a long time the sort of the idea or the problem of the pictorial space about how to address it. What was the most sort of, uh, what was the best way to address it? <laughs> you know, endlessly. There's rather sort of rather fecund and really annoying sort of statements like painting is dead. Of course it's not. It's, it continues because it's fascinating and endlessly fascinating. But how do you attempt it? How do you address it? And so for me personally, I thought that the essentialist way to address a, a sort of a surface was to actually coat the surface in, in what was, a, 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 you know, want, cognitive and alive and sentient. And so on the surface of a brain painting, it's possible to kind of imagine that, you know, the, on that surface is a sort of the recollection of a cow to its mother, you know, or the milking shed. And so there is that sort of information. And so this material which I'm painting is, in, is, is sort of like the, the complete depiction of a material of complete ambiguity. And so for me, that was really fascinating. So instead of me painting a tree, I was painting with the ability to cognition a tree. And, and I thought that that was sort of fascinating and an interesting kind of way of proceeding. You know, in a certain kind of arrogant way, you kind of go, oh yes, this is year zero painting, this is amazing. But it's sort of, it's, less co it's more complex than that because, you know, how do you address the two-dimensional, how do you make mark making with a brain matter? Because it's a very neutral material, it's kind of a very browny, yellowy liquid and it will eventually dry. Um, and it smells awful. And so you suddenly then suddenly have to go into the language of abstract art. And then you feel that this is a failure somehow, that you're not year zero, you're not creating something completely afresh because you're actually relying on you know, a surface, a surface which is interpreting something. And so in a way you can't escape. And so the way that I made these paintings was probably on a January morning, just after New Year's, where you know, you've got a headache and it's freezing in the studio and you've got all of these boards prepared and you've got some brain matter and you're just going to paint them as quickly as you can and then get out. I'm not even looking. And so this is kind of that. It's sort of an automatic kind of thing because you're going through the process of doing it. You need to get it off your chest, but you don't know what the, you don't know what the surface matter is supposed to represent or the surface image at least. And so that was the quandary. You know, I could come in with a spray and spray this thing, but that's just so awful, that's, that's horrible. What was interesting about this was is that this was a failed brain painting. So it was a brain painting which was too abstract. It looked too interesting. And so the thing that I did next to it was to actually sort of crystallize it afterwards. And so the crystallization which crystallizes on a molecular level, it sort of grows small to, to macro, from micro to macro. But the molecules it was growing off was brain matter rather than its own crystallization. So in a way that you had this corrupt kind of process between two materialities. And so for me, there was a kind of an interesting kind of mixture, some kind of problem happening. This is an engine, but it's got a brain in it. <laughs> Quite like that piece. And then on the left, the sex paintings occurred. And so... Again, you're kind of thinking about the two-dimensional surface, and you're thinking about representation, and you're thinking about sort of how to think about the presentation of imagery, and you're also thinking about the presentation of behavior. And for a long time, before I made these paintings, I would talk endlessly about the, um, the ability of the artist to invent new types of behavior. Maybe that was the interesting thing. 
maybe the, um, the point of being an artist wasn't to, to, to play around with materials endlessly. Rather like snooker balls on a table, you would just present the possibility of a new behavior or the possibility of opening up a kind of a ritualistic space, perhaps. That's a type of behavior. But essentially just behavior occurring that hadn't been anticipated previously. And there were these interesting kind of ideas about uh, being thrown around about the fact that, you know, if you go on a protest, of course your protest is neutralized by authorities pretty quickly because it's anticipated. Your behavior as a protester is an anticipated behavior. And so, in a way, to get past that, to get past that problem, was to actually design or think about new types of behavior so that it wasn't anticipated. That actually we can walk through the world as maybe a kind of a, an increased cap capability of human if we were to sort of address or rethink the type of limits that our kind of behavior was, was under and that we could possibly kind of liberate ourselves through a kind of another type of behavior. Anyway, so these kind of thinkings, these bits and pieces of thinking, were kind of emerging through the sort of the presentation of kind of the sexual act in these paintings. But also as well as the, 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 the flatness of the surface was important in these early pieces, but also as well as the fact that they, the paint itself was a kind of a latex which reacted with itself, which created these sort of rather grotesque skins. And so if you saw these up close, you have this rather sort of skin-like, quite sort of... Uh, yeah, grim. And, and so there was um, other variations. You can see the texture. Okay. Okay, so this is probably leading into the next thing. So this was a, sl a slightly odd piece in the show. So. Essentially, this is a fridge, a fridge freezer, and it's got a hole cut in it. And so the viewer or the person visiting the show would put their hand in there, and they would freeze their, or make their hand cold. And so the, gest the gesture, <laughs> the gesture, oh, blimey. So a Mac is doing what a Mac does best. Okay. So the gesture. Okay, well maybe it's good to ask some questions. Actually, if there is any questions while I play around with this, let me know, because uh, this looks like it could take some time. If no time at all. Sometimes, a lot of the work was coming from a very early idea, which was actually to, to put together an archive. And uh, again, because of a sort of a financial limitation, I was taking images from anywhere that seemed interesting. And so I put this thing together which I kind of called a digestive system, which was essentially that all of this imagery, all of these things gleaned from the internet, all these things found maybe, you know, if the watchtower had put a leaflet through my door, I would find an interesting image within that somehow. All of these bits of texture from the world was sort of, I was kind of looking for 
as a photo project. And so it came, became kind of interesting to, to try and present you know, an archive. And what I was trying to do with the icon show in, in particular was actually to actually follow a book which I'd put out with the show, which was this sort of book which was actually showing a lot of the material from the archive, a lot of the ideas. And so actually what happens with the archive is, is that it does actually then act like a spinal column. You know, it, it sort of acts at the center of the work somehow. And then actually the work is all responding. So when I take a picture of an artwork, for instance, like if I took a picture of one of these paintings, it then becomes part of the archive. So it's this sort of self-sustaining kind of um, artwork, which is kind of growing as a, as a photographic artwork. So yes, if an image is right for black and white, then I'll make it black and white. And it's usually a very synthetic decision why you would ask, or, or why you would sort of ask a picture that was color to be black and white. It would be just purely aesthetic terms, and it would mean nothing. And I'm kind of interested in that. I'm kind of interested in putting an archive together, which is really important in terms of trying to locate significance in the present day, but also trying to um, understand you know, where the location of significance might be. So that was something that I found really interesting and important. Two projects, which I'll probably talk about, because obviously we have no images, is... Um, Okay. Let's see where this ends up. Okay. Let's see if we can move this into somewhere useful. Probably not. Okay. I want to find you one image. Part of the reason why I'm in Bristol today is because I'm talking to a school about a project, but I'm also working on a project called Free Tank. Um, and one of them is, uh, they couldn't be more polar opposite. They're, they're, pretty, they're pretty opposite in the way that they, um, they present themselves. And what was kind of important is that they somehow had some kind of relationship, that there was a modesty in one version of the work, but also there was a sort of monumentalism happening in the other. And so at the moment, just sort of not far from here, near Temple Mead Station, there is a sort of a, a new work, which is these, um, a, a, a pair of granite pieces, which are rather complicated forms made out of granite. And in a way that they sort of, they sort of propose a sort of um, a permanence, a super permanence to some degree. And there was something that I was really fascinated by. When I was sort of saying at the beginning that a lot of my work is, is sort of impermanent, a lot of the work is, is not sort of strictly going to survive, um, that it becomes really fascinating to, to, to think about actually materials that are going to survive. <coughs> and then the other project is working with a school. And it's working in two different ways. It's working on a project which is essentially asking the school to ritualize their day-to-dayness, but at a very specific moment. It's when the children of a certain year, year two, move into the big school, and they're at two different sites. And so in a way, there is a sort of introduction of a ritualistic activity, um, a song. And that song is delivered by the kids in the school, all lying on their backs in the schoolyard, singing essentially a song about um, 
a very old song about love passing, a kind of a losing a love. And so it was, became really sort of an interesting sort of prospect to essentially sort of put in to the, um, the life of the school, but also the life of the children, this sort of unique moment, this moment of transition, and to sort of draw attention to the idea of a threshold, that essentially that you were going to move from one period in time to the next, and that I wanted it to become more obvious. I think that when we were at school, when all of us were at school perhaps, maybe I'm just speaking for myself here actually, there was this moment of transitioning between age groups, transitioning and the ritual, that sort of unspoken, but also that idea that you were going to sort of transition from one um, year group to the next. And so I wanted to make those ideas explicit. And so to have these sort of moments that the children essentially would remember as specific moments. But I also wanted to make the sort of the school kind of exceptional. I wanted to have this exceptional moment between um, the children and its school. Good timing. <laughs> and so what we have is a sort of a, a variation of, a, of an early version of this work. So over the summer of last year, uh, the gallery, Icon Gallery, were really interested in me working with the cathedral. And so I proposed the idea that this would be something that was possible. We would ask the choristers to essentially atomize themselves, not be in the ranks of choristers, but to actually sort of de-establish the idea of the choir and actually scatter themselves amongst an emptied-out cathedral. And so what they did was is that they... But we didn't want this to be a performance. I wanted this to be, as far as it could be, real. I wanted this to actually represent... Uh, a, a, to, to slightly change the, um, the, um, the reading of an Evensong, an Evensong which is a, a pretty medieval piece of, um, of religious, um, religious uh, tradition. It's getting very random now. And so I was asking them, I was asking them to, to essentially scatter themselves around but to, to enact the Evensong, a religious sort of service. And so during all of this, they would lie and they would do the anthem, they would do um, um, hymns, but also sermons were spoken and prayers were made. And so actually what was happening is, is that the, um, the church is somehow being ever so slightly um, changed. And what was interesting also about it was the political conversations that the church were having within the church to allow this to happen, because it wasn't accepted that this was the norm, and was this a critique? And the church, you know, doesn't like critique too much. But the, the, the church needs to self-reflect because it's losing its congregation to some degree. And so they thought that this was an idea. This was an interesting idea towards the idea that they might be reflecting. They might be a little bit more self-aware about where they might be. And so it became really fascinating. And the canon um, was a woman canon, uh, Catherine Ogle, and so in a way that there was a certain sense of her own radicalism to get to the position where she was, was actually being followed through by her allowing this piece to happen. I'm not religious, by the way, and it becomes really interesting to actually sort of be allowed or introduced into the church to, to, to allow this to happen. And so, no, it was a sort of an uncanny and strange kind of event. I wouldn't say that it was beautiful. I wouldn't say it was kind of successful. I would just say that there's something different was happening. And that was enough. 
<laughs> I have no idea why that's there. We'll get somewhere. Well, that probably concludes the... Um, <laughs> one thing I would say also as well is, is that what happens amongst all of these artworks is that everything is happening in similar stages. Everything is happening at similar times. So at the time of asking choirs to, to lie down, making paintings with brain matter or sex, asking um, people to bury aircraft in hillsides near Ipswich, and making um, stone columns for a work in Bristol which uh, is, again, trying to ask people who are local to this area, this rather shiny area, to uh, essentially burn their papers within. There are these furnaces, essentially. All of these sort of activities are all happening at the same time. They're all happening within the same kind of field of experience. And I think that that was one thing that I always found quite interesting and quite important, which was actually to sort of try and violate the idea that there was a timeline, that there was a way that one work seeged into another. Because I thought that it was very important to try and present the idea that a life changes, that a life is a sort of a fluid, changeable event, rather than a sort of a strictly kind of, you know, that you, you don't settle into anything. Nothing ever became stable. And I think that... I was sort of reactive. I thought I, I was sort of slightly, sort of, you know, I was slightly curiously suspicious of the idea of the sort of the modernist canon to some degree. I was suspicious of the idea that you would, hold, you know, you would give your life over to the monumental kind of idea of self, and that self was going to create a single artwork. If you think about sort of maybe Tom Twombly, or if you think about Richard Serra, we were going to continue this idea about our self, the projection of the self through objects, and it was going to be unrelenting. And it was about sort of a certain kind of presentation of ego. And so what I was really interested in is, is that there are other ways of the presentation of ego, which is to say that there is a sort of a slippage, a fragility, a kind of a way that things don't necessarily link to another. And so what was really important, what was really interesting, was actually not to have consistency not to present consistency as an art career, or not to have a career to some degree. And I think that that was really sort of a, a kind of a critical kind of moment, I think, which allows you then to, um, to essentially sort of operate within the world within a certain freedom, that actually you're not creating yourself into a trap. And I think that that was something that I found really important because I see my sort of contemporaries and I see people that I know, you know, people I sort of work with who also show, that I see that they are kind of working their way into a certain types of traps. And I think that it's really interesting and important to try and maintain a certain sort of autonomy from your own work, from your own kind of output, from your own kind of, I don't know, from your thoughts one day to the next. And so when I talked right at the beginning in a slightly clumsy way about the idea of kind of idea to mood, it was about this idea that, yeah, okay, so there is a period in time where you actually sort of choose a la carte the ideas which are going to construct your, your kind of identity, um, the way that you're going to operate. Um, what type of artist you might be might be through the ideas that are filtering through other artists who you agree with, who you feel that there is some kind of interesting affinity to. 
And I think that actually that was really sort of problematic for me. I thought that that was sort of um, not completely honest. And I thought that actually once that you've established the ideas, once you've kind of understood that these ideas exist and you've rejected some and some have stuck to you, that perhaps actually the next part is to actually sort of then flow into the idea of mood, modulation of, of just environment and mood. And so the choir pieces, for instance, to some degree were about numinous and mood. Seizure was about sort of the modulation of kind of emotion through color, through intensity. Burying aircraft, anxiety to some degree, you're supposed to go into that plane. And so you do have this sort of possibility to be post-idea. <laughs> And, and sort of and, and move into the next thing. I'm just talking crap now. So we should, we should just, um, if there's any... <laughs> oh, um, yes, probably, but um, I think it might be. <laughs> I think we might be a bit too far down the line now, I think. Yeah. So, no, I think it might be question time, because I think it might be... Yeah, I've talked long enough. But I'll understand if there isn't any questions. Okay, it's a, it's, a, it's a project which has been, well, project, I, don't, I shouldn't say that word. It's a work which has been around for a while, which is that I've been talking about sort of the, 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 sort of the, the burial of aircraft. And then again, it was a sort of an extreme and rather literal type of artwork, which was to suggest that the next stage of the airplane, perhaps, is its burial. Perhaps that the rather sort of the literal kind of way to address the airplane is to put it under the ground. And so, and I didn't, again, want to talk about this thing as a, a single moment. Like, for instance, that there would be the aeroplane, and that was the experience, and that was the kind of the Western experience of, of a kind of an artwork. I wanted to talk about the work in terms of a global object being buried globally. And so there are numbers of conversations happening at the moment about burying a plane in different parts of the globe. And it becomes kind of fascinating to, to see how that conversation might develop. So, for instance, if someone is going to think about burying a plane through, you know, for instance, Arts Council funding, and someone's going to do it through an institution in the UK, then you have yourself in this situation, which is essentially the sort of the, the Western art um, experience version of burying an aircraft. So it's not exactly, in the way that I put it, the most exciting way of putting it, but it, that is the interpretation of burying an aircraft pretty much now in the West here. But if I was to do it in Chicago, there is a different narrative. And if I was to do it in, um, there's another conversation which is happening just outside Abuja in Nigeria. And so the person who wants to bury a plane over there wants to essentially scrape the ground away, put in this old aircraft from an old airfield, and then use that as a, as a spiritual space, essentially. He wants to use it as a sort of an ad hoc church. And so different kind of, places, different cultures will have different kind of attitudes towards essentially a piece of waste material which was once a global kind of um, carrier a kind of a way of kind of augmenting our reality and I think the thing that fascinates, fascinates me about the aircraft is essentially it just you know, it's, it has a great influence on our reality um, it sort of has more influence on our reality than any other object and I think that there is a really interesting way of actually addressing it Yeah, yeah, go for it. Anything that um, has planes on, that's great. 
Now, this is seizure. But we don't need to talk about that. Okay, if we sort of flick slowly through these ones. So, yeah, this is a, a, a burial in Ipswich. So, this was a sort of a, a burial which happened on a Wednesday afternoon in the middle of um, the summer last, last year, in which a farmer was very happy for a plane to be buried, and that the plane was actually um, sold to me by his neighbour. And so this became a, an interesting kind of situation. It became a man who I built, bought airplane parts off for various different projects, and he said that his neighbour was really interested in the idea of, that I'd been touting around of putting an aircraft under the ground. The farmer himself was, you know, he was kind of a bit pissed off generally about things. He sort of, he was sort of, um, he wasn't allowed to build a building that he wanted for his company. The, the local council wouldn't kind of, you know, in his own words, allow him to treat his land like it was his own. So planning permission was the apparatus to stop him from getting what he wanted for his own business and for what he wanted. So anyway, so he was kind of pissed off. And then the guy from the next door who sells aeroplanes just said, okay, well, let's ship this aeroplane over the, over the fence, put it back together again and put it in the ground. And so he, over the course of a couple of days, scored away at the chalk on a hilltop. And it's kind of near the River Orwell, so it's kind of next to where George used to play. And um, <laughs> before he went to Eton... And, and then he would just sort of scratch away at the ground with a digger and make this rather beautiful hole. Can we flick through these a bit more? Here you go. And so, very simply, the plane was just inserted into the ground and then, and then covered back up again. Another one. And so that was the land before, and it probably looks a bit like that now. I think there's an after... There's another picture. And so, in a way, what became kind of interesting about this was, again, going through the process of the burial of the aircraft. It just seemed kind of interesting to, to inter a plane in a landscape. And so that sort of cross of ground is sort of where it was. Again, mood came into this. There was this kind of very somber, not somber, I'm not sort of, wanting to sort of put cliché and, and sort of sell this thing. But it seemed really interesting that actually we really did feel slightly morbid <laughs> at the end of this. That there is this kind of idea of threshold. And there is this sort of idea that the ancients were probably quite correct in this idea that once you sort of explore the underneath, under the ground, once you sort of uh, score into it, and then you put something of significance in that ground, and then you cover it back up again, that process puts you in a very strange position. It puts you in the ground and outside of the ground. And so your mind, in a way, is sort of playing with this idea of, of fluctuation. And um, it's a very uncanny feeling. And it's, yeah, and it isn't that dissimilar to the feeling of burial, to be fair, you know, family burial. But it's also sort of a kind of an interesting process to go through. It's slow. And so in a way, what happens next with this is, is it will get unburied or get pulled back up again and then the plane will be shipped somewhere else and and then buried again 
and, um, and it will go on and on until the plane can't take it any longer because it's a sort of an abuse of an object. Because I think it's important to, um, to abuse objects. <laughs> but it's, that abuse is kind of important because in a way there's a sort of a reclamation of the power of that object if you somehow address it and not behave towards the behavior that that object is trying to get you to behave to. You know, an object in the world is a power relationship. The first thing that um, we were always talked, you know, we always talked about when we were thinking about early sculptures. I haven't talked about sculpture very much, but I, I guess in a way there is a technicality to suggest that I am a sculptor. But, but it sort of becomes really interesting to think about the fact that when you put an object in a room, you're creating a power relationship. There is a relationship there which is now established. And um, it's important to understand what that real relationship really is. Um, but actually, we'll, we're having that all the time. And so, in a way, we're, you know, it's important to establish what the relationship to every object and the power that it's exerting onto you, the coercion that that object is coercing, coercing you to have, that relationship, is important to understand. And so, in a way, I guess my understanding of that object is to put it in the ground, is to sort of essentially make it go away, put it away for a bit, make it out of sight, bury it, um, and then bring it back up again, look at it again, and then bear it again, and then just sort of try and judge, understand, assess. I'm mildly autistic. So it sort of kind of comes into that. It kind of comes into that kind of repetition. Um, yeah, one more question would be great. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get to these. Yeah, next, please. And the next Okay, so we're, we're moving into kind of the free tank, which is the, the work across the way. A little bit more. And a bit more. Stop it there for a minute. There was something really fascinating about making the pre-tank work. And that was, in a way, the, the, the point of the work to some degree was to, to sort of, <clears throat> to monumentalize uh, provocation and to think about how to get under the skin of the area that it was happening within. The free tank was this piece of land, probably need to be corrected, I'll probably be corrected on this, but as far as I understand it, the piece of land um, was a piece of Bristol, Bristol City Council and it was owned as their piece of land. So it was a piece of free land. And the history of free tank is, is it's this anomalous piece of land that is essentially a step towards the waterfront where historically people would have been able to, uh, to fetch water without interfering with other people's land or holdings. And so it was a piece of freedom, even you know, initiated into its own name. And I thought that this was a really fascinating project to get involved in simply because it was... Um, proposing an anomalous space, something that wasn't easy to deal with. Essentially, there was a room in itself to begin with, because what was happening around it in the early days when we were talking about free tank is that we were having a kind of a corporate climate inserting itself around the free tank. And so what you have over there at Temple 
Temple Meads is essentially a group of very shiny and, uh, and mostly sort of law-based law kind of companies. Um, I'm not singling out law, I'm just saying. It just appears that way at the moment. But it sort of becomes um, a fascinating uh, sort of landscape in which it seems to be made of a sort of a temporality or a temporiness. Um, and also there is a sort of a corporate palette, which is sort of uh, about reflection. Lots of glass, a sort of an arbitrary sort of choice of colour, um, and sort of, um, a sort, of a, sort of a modernism, a kind of like an international sort of, sort of veneer modernism, I think. And so I thought that this was a kind of a fascinating environment for these works. And so I, what I wanted to propose with Free Tank was essentially to, um, to inject density into the area, to actually sort of oppose what was essentially reflective surfaces and lightness. I wanted to put concrete and stone and, and possibility of fire <laughs> into this environment, but also to ritualize the possibility of it, to say that perhaps that if we're going to bring in the idea of furnaces, these stone columns, I, you know, I have a, a sort of a mild obsession with sort of um, um, Egyptian monumentality. And so, you know, I wanted to copy stone. I wanted to bring stone from the same sources as, as, um, as you, know, in, in, you know, again, talking about escaping time. I wanted to bring, you know, these monumental bits of stone and design them with a complication. You know, make them incredibly complex to make but incredibly uncomplex to look at. Um, so making them by hand would be very difficult, so they were all machine-made on a monumental scale. This company that made it is based in Northern Ireland, and it was set up specifically to make the Diana Memorial in Serpentine Park, which is an insanely complicated piece of stone making, which is incredibly huge. And so they have this very unique setup of making stone masonry on such a massive scale. And so, no, I thought that this was fascinating. I thought that this was interesting to, to sort of, again, think about sort of density, think about scale. You know, these things, I think, are about sort of seven meters each. And I wanted to sort of also think about the usage uh, as a kind of a provocation towards what was happening on its doorstep. So, no, I thought that the idea of actually sort of talking to the law firm about burning papers <laughs> within these furnaces, rather like a sort of a thing, like, a, like a, you know, on a Friday afternoon, someone would kind of leave and, and burn things within these, within, these, um, within these stones, would be kind of a fascinating and interesting kind of provocation to them because I knew that they wouldn't want to. I knew that this is not something that anybody would want to be involved in because it takes a certain amount of reflection to get involved in something like that. A kind of a self-criticism might be occurring and there is a certain sort of type of, um, I don't know, awareness perhaps that is being drawn attention to. But actually it's more important to not draw attention to the fact that you're being drawn attention to. So it became really fascinating to sort of have that sort of rather cat and mouse game, but on a monumentalist kind of object. At the time of making it, I was also very interested in sort of turning the space into a kind of a permissive space. I don't know what that really represented or meant, but it just seemed really interesting to sort of change the law that sort of guided that space um, or governed that space to everything else around it so that maybe some event or something else could occur within it. Uh, and so in a way it became a kind of a liberated space. 
But actually, through putting the stones there, putting this artwork there, it became actually, that was happening anyway, because that's, it's, it's under a certain type of jurisdiction and preservation, or unpreservation. Because, you know, if you went into the space, when we have really nice pictures, I'll show you. But when we sort of um, go into the space, you know, it's, 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 it's got a, a density and a brutality to it, which I was really sort of trying to, to, um, to achieve. My sort of heritage from Birmingham, heritage, coming from Birmingham. I come from Birmingham. And, um, and so it became really familiar, the idea that you have this sort of density of material. I grew up pretty much in the center of Birmingham. So I, I, you know, I, I sort of very much enjoyed the sort of the concrete hug of, of that city. I also understood the fact that there was um, the problems of materiality, of density that the fact of unfinished projects, you know, all of this is the sort of part of the sort of the, the folkloric kind of upbringing of living in Birmingham. You know, this sort of willful wanting to move towards um, optimism and then that sort of not quite sort of retaining it. And so this was really fascinating for me to actually sort of bring a certain amount of density from that town into this to some degree. And then, you know, Birmingham and Bristol, I think are architecturally rather similar in a certain respect. Um, and that's not an insult. And yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'll take some nice questions. Um, uh, yeah, a couple more. Two more, please. Okay. These are sort of like little cutaways. It's the kind of the stone making. Lots of accidental forms came from the stone making, so that's rather lovely. And then this is a sort of a snapshot of some of the, the, the form work happening in the concrete space uh, last summer. Anyway, so the completion of it is pretty much now, and the photography of it is pretty much now. And so in a way, I would suggest that it's probably best to explore it, I think, um, when, it's, when it's finally open, I think. And, um, but I think that, yes, it goes some way of explaining something. I haven't gone anywhere near into it as, as I could do, but, um, but I think I'm probably... You've probably all got better things to do. Uh, tonight, so I won't go on too much. And so uh, the choice of the objects is, is, quite, um, is quite slow. It's, um, like for instance, when I was making crystallized objects, when I was making crystallized works, it was about the sort of the nomination of an object. And so in the early days, it was about taking a card, a uh, cathedral, and crystallizing it. And then I could sort of weave a narrative between crystallization and cathedrals being some kind of connection somehow. And then, um, then from crystallization of cathedrals, it came to engines. And then I could make some kind of connection between the two, that I was drawing attention to the object somehow. And then from there, it went to the bedsit. From the bedsit, it went to the paintings. And now there are actually these physical kind of bodies which I'm crystallizing, which are kind of, kind of a bit creepy. But there is this sort of idea that, essentially, there is a sort of a going through life and becoming attuned to the objects which are actually imposing kind of some kind of pressure. And I think that actually maybe that's what 
is happening to some degree. Not all the time, but there is certainly a feeling that there are um, there are ways of you know again you know the, the wonders of being an artist is essentially that you you know uh, traditionally you could wander through life you know essentially looking to become attuned to your environment to um, to sort of vibrate alongside it rather than feel somehow um, obliged to take part or to feel overwhelmed by it that you were stepping outside but not so much outside as to be distant or separated, but actually just to allow yourself to view it with a little bit more uh, understanding or truth than maybe being completely submerged. It's like walking around a swimming pool rather than being in it, perhaps. And so I was then becoming quite aware that certain objects were imposing a certain amount of influence and power. And it's quite nice just to address these objects. And so the jet engine from a military aircraft is kind of interesting or atomizing a passenger jet aircraft engine is kind of nice, interesting. Because these are actually exposed, oh, sorry, imposing certain pressures. And maybe that I'm trying to neutralize a certain type of pressure, perhaps. Maybe I'm over-explaining, but antidepressants is kind of interesting because you know that the trap is present and the trap is kind of you know, somehow closer and sometimes further away uh, within people's lives. And so it becomes kind of interesting to kind of address these objects and the physicality of the work. And it's nothing to do, in a way, with a kind of a ready-made conversation. It's not really about a kind of a Duchampian sort of idea of wanting to, to bring the, the world into the gallery. I think that it, we're kind of a, we're past that. And in fact, actually, this is far more kind of um, a kind of a laissez-faire relationship to the world, which is to, you know, just essentially just look at the world and address it. And then, you know, and then actually say it's art as well, <laughs> because that's fine. And um, because there are certain types of behavior which, you know, shouldn't be confined and art shouldn't find its way being confined. And, um, you know, when I used to lecture to students, I used to, used to, and they used to walk out of my lectures quite often because I used to say things like, you know, just take what it was that you need from art. If you feel that there's an artwork that you feel represents and you can take it further than the person who's making it, just take it and, and build on that. Don't feel that there is ownership to some degree, because in a way, your building on that is exactly what you know, the process of living and the pro process of creating right now is about. It's how to behave or not behave. And, uh, <clears throat> and so I found that kind of, yeah. And so to some, that was liberating, and then some, you know, they threw books at me. And, um, you know, choosing objects I'm interested in the next object. I'm quite curious about what the next object might be, but I'm not entirely sure what that's going to be. And then putting the, the youth next to the objects. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah. About, like, what the, like, the people and um, the One thing that I was really fascinated by, um, again, 
as a kind of an establishing group of ideas was to say, suggest that ambiguity itself could be presented as a work or presented as, an, uh, as a material. And so actually when people are presenting themselves on the work, they're presenting their own ambiguity because they're not communicating. They're actually just being present. And so in a way, I think that there was a really sort of fascinating thing, and going back to sort of Martin Heidegger, stuffed into a body, there was something really interesting about the phrase that he used to sort of say, which was to, to essentially take a stand on your being, which was essentially to, to give yourself the space to allow attunedness to kind of flood in, that you actually sort of had to take a stand on, you know, the world itself, how to push away the, the sort of the toings and froings of the presentness of the world, and actually kind of um, let the, you know, let the subtleties and the, and the wider axis of understanding come in. I think it's been fascinating over the last few months, years, perhaps, that you know, we are within a tight bandwidth of understanding our present predicaments. You know, we're fed quite often a kind of a narrow kind of idea, a narrow trajectory of understanding. And, uh, and I think that you know, there is wider understanding out there, but it's not obviously drawn attention to any longer. Not like it used to, perhaps. And so in a way, I think that, again, it's that action of taking a stand on your being, being present on the work, presenting your kind of being, seems to kind of hold, or I, I kind of want from it, a kind of a holding place to, um, to the possibility of a wider experience, the possibility of understanding wider experience, um, and kind of pushing back on this kind of endless presentness Jesus, you know, Guardian Online at the moment. <laughs> it's a mess. But it's sort of, so it becomes kind of, I don't know why I brought that up, but it's sort of, um, it gives me, yeah, it gives me a headache. But I think that it becomes really, um, and so yes, so when people are present, it's self-selecting to some degree, because people present themselves, people put themselves forward to be selected. I'm not entirely sure how people have become the kind of people that, present themselves. It, it's about a kind of a self-confidence to some degree. It's about a kind of a, um, a comfortableness about who they are, which I think is really important. So there is a kind of a power in that. Um, no, I'm, I'm still sort of, yeah, I'm still sort of hung up on the whole kind of presenting ambiguity. Because the work is, because you have no idea what that person is thinking. And I think that that's really important. And I think that's really interesting, is to present the ultimate of ambiguity, which is that, you know, presentness without communication somehow. They can communicate if they want, but they choose not to. Um, so yeah, sorry, I don't know if that was a kind of a jumble of ideas rather than an answer, but it gets somewhere perhaps. Any more? I'm getting a thumbs up, so that's probably me having to top. Oh, sorry, one more question. Oh yeah, there's, there's plenty of time. <laughs> I'm here for the night. There is a sense that, for instance, the photographs that you saw of the buried plane, we couldn't close the door. And so that plane is now under some kind of ossification. You know, it, it's changing in certain respects. It's not the intention of the work, but it's, um, it's, it's going to be a factor of the aesthetic of it when it comes back out. 
because I didn't want to prioritize that process. I, could, I didn't know how to answer to that process. So I'm just going to let the accident happen and then see how that process might then affect the work. I couldn't prioritize any aspect of the work at all. And that's the thing I find the most sort of fascinating about the idea of bearing aircraft, because one, it's very literal. But two, I can't prioritize any reason why this should be done. But I couldn't then prioritize any reason why it shouldn't be done. So it's sort of kind of, it just seemed to be a kind of an understanding that if you're going to have this idea, you might as well try and make it. And you might as well try and let it exist. People pick the idea up and they play with it. So you have lots of different institutions, ideas, people kind of wanting to use it. And it usually then becomes instrumentalized. Sorry, I'm going a bit off the butt, but I will get to your point. <laughs> but it sort of, um, it gets instrumentalized by different institutions for, you know, for vain reasons perhaps, you know, a director might think that this is the most fascinating thing and it might be good on their CV, to the idea that this might be an archeological or kind of interesting problem that uh, is presenting itself to the world and it might be a kind of a really interesting way of behaving. You know, there are different ways and different reasons why people kind of want these things to happen. And so when I talk about sort of the global idea, you know, you do have a priest in Abuja wanting to, to put it under the ground and he wants to pray in it. And you kind of think, well, I'm not gonna get in the way of that. That's just fascinating. And, uh, and you think, well, you know, what kind of world are we living in that allows this thing or wants this thing to happen? And I think that that highlighting is really interesting. But in the origins of the work, yeah, there is definitely a kind of a feeling of, of long barrow, perhaps. You know, there is this kind of feeling of, uh, of, a, of a kind of an underground space which is somehow charged with ritual. Because, you know, I'm talking about a pro, uh, a, a plane which is buried and then brought out back out again and then watched going back in and watched back out again. But there's also the idea, or there was the idea of talking about it being entered into. And, um, and so the, you know, the plane being entered into is then a different type of experience. It becomes about sort of um, an amplification of anxiety to some degree. And it's an anxious object being amplified further. And I think that that was something which I found really interesting. It could also be incredibly monotonous. It could be, um, it could be about boredom. It could be about sort of, kind of, those kind of experiences which we don't fully kind of give time to, because um, essentially you're going into a plane and you're going to sit down under the ground in a plane. And so, uh, you know, what is the significance of that if there is any? And so it becomes really fascinating about sort of trying to unravel the process of, of separation between all these strands of experience that a work can have. So. I guess in a way, um, I haven't, I, I don't know what the question was. Uh, it, yeah, it was, um, yeah, there is an archaeological kind of feeling. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> I think the, the two at the front are telling me to shut up. So I think we'll, we'll call it quits. Yeah, no, I've got to catch a train. Oh, sorry, one last question. I'll make it quick. Well, um, that one from me, and, um, and the other one from me, uh, because there isn't any public money, <clears throat> and so I'm not asking for it. And so um, people, um, you know, you don't have to pay for it. Nobody has to pay for it here. You know, this is my problem. And so it becomes kind of interesting about, um, you know, funding it. There are people who are invested, who are interested, who, um, who collect art, perhaps, and, and so are very interested in, in kind of doing these projects. But no, in this country, no, there isn't much sort of chance of bearing aircraft in, under, um, under Arts Council funding.